Welcome, everyone. This is a Council of Institutional Investors educational podcast. I'm Jeff Mahoney, General Counsel at CII. I'm here today with Andrew F. Tuck, Professor of Law at Washington University in St. Louis School of Law. Professor Tuck is the co-author of a recent research article entitled The Further Erosion of Investor Protection, Expanded Exemptions, SPAC Mergers, and Direct Listings. The article examines what the authors describe as a decades-long decline of investor protections enshrined in Section 11 of the Securities Act of 1933. Welcome, Professor Tuck. Thanks for taking the time to speak with us today. Thanks very much, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you. Professor, can we begin by first explaining to our listeners what is Section 11 of the Securities Act of 1933? And why do you believe the existence of that section is so critical to investor protection and the U.S. capital market system? Well, Jeff, as listeners may know, the Securities Act of 1933 was the most powerful response by Congress to the 1929 Great Crash, which precipitated the Great Depression. These events illustrated the need for greater investor protection when securities are offered to the public. And Section 11 is the most potent liability provision within that statute, and it is still on the books. It imposes strict liability on issuers, but the key to the provision is that it recognizes that holding issuers alone liable doesn't go far enough. Issuers may become insolvent. They may think they won't be caught. They may have self-interested or rogue employees that don't respond appropriately to the threat of liability. And so what Section 11 very cleverly does is to hold other actors liable in addition to issuers for the wrongs of issuers. And it thoughtfully selects underwriters chiefly among those parties and holds them strictly liable for disclosure errors in public offerings. But it gives them a defense if they take what's called due diligence. And so as a result of this statute, due diligence has become a byword for the careful investigation of facts not just in securities regulation, but in many other realms as well. And so the upshot of this regime is that underwriters, investment banks are the underwriters, they know that they'll be on the hook if investors are deceived in a public offering or if they're not fully informed. And the consequence for underwriters is that they exercise due diligence to attempt to avoid liability. They scrutinize materials provided to investors to ensure that they're complete and accurate. And vitally, what they do is they contract with other professionals accountants and lawyers to ensure that they also undertake due diligence. Because if underwriters are liable to investors, then under this regime that investment banks put in place, then accountants and lawyers may well be liable to the underwriters. So what you have is a regime in which there are multiple gatekeepers with various areas of expertise, not just underwriters with financial expertise, but accountants with accounting expertise, lawyers with legal expertise, bringing their expertise to bear and checking facts to ensure that the disclosures that investors rely on, that public investors rely on, are accurate and complete. And so the result is this is this very elaborate system designed to protect investors. And just a couple more things on that. The justification for Section 11 is that investors can't fend for themselves. And they also can't sort of contract or coordinate among themselves to protect themselves adequately. And underwriters also, we know that underwriters also have 
reputational incentives to do the right thing. But the view taken, and I think there's strong support for this, is that you need additional incentives beyond reputational constraints. And that's why Section 11 is considered justified in the context of public offerings. And so it applies every time securities are offered to the public. It doesn't apply to private offerings, but to public offerings. And final point is US securities markets are the world's deepest and most liquid. They're a magnet for companies around the world. And this is due in no small part to the sophistication of US securities regulation, including, we think, the most potent liability provision, which is Section 11. Professor, your article points to the early 1980s as the beginning of a series of Securities Exchange Commission rulemakings that created exemptions from Section 11, thereby harming investors. Please explain what happened and how might the current or a future Securities Exchange Commission reverse course? Yes, Jeff. The story begins in the early 1980s when there was a deregulatory philosophy that prevailed. So the SEC didn't alter, acting on this philosophy, the SEC didn't alter the application of Section 11. It still applied and applies to public offerings of securities. Rather, what it did was to expand the breadth of private offerings, so non-public offerings. In other words, it expanded exemptions from compliance with the Securities Act. And so this meant that many transactions that in the past would have been conducted as public offerings and would therefore have been subject to this liability provision, Section 11, were conducted within exemptions as private offerings beyond the reach of Section 11. And in 1982, it was the SEC's adoption of Regulation D, which had a profound impact This is a regulation that generally exempts transactions made to accredited investors. These are investors who satisfy some uh, wealth threshold as a proxy for sophistication. And this regulation, Regulation D, has been described as the exemption that swallowed the rule. So the rule obviously is that public offerings need to be registered and therefore subject to Section 11. And the wealth threshold in real terms has reduced over time because it hasn't kept pace with inflation which means that more and more investors satisfy the definition. The regulation has been expanded over time, most recently by the Jobs Act in 2012. And the upshot is that majority of capital that's raised today privately is raised under the Regulation D exemption. And then there have been other exemptions as well. So there have been exemptions that have really encouraged or made the offerings of private securities, or rather made securities privately offered more liquid which has encouraged issuers to make private offerings rather than public offerings since buyers of the securities are more able to trade in the aftermarket without the sorts of restrictions that used to apply. So Rule 144A was adopted in 1990, making securities sold in private offerings more easily transferable. We've had crowdfunding more recently and various other exemptions that have encouraged fundraising outside public offerings. In other words, fundraising not subject to Section 11. So just to give you some indication and your listeners some indication of this reversal that's occurred, in 1970, something like 85% of capital raised in the United States was raised in public offerings subject to Section 11. Today, that figure is something like 30%. And it's, it's not clear, to answer the final part of your question, Jeff, it's not clear how this course might be reversed. And, and some would argue it should not be. It's unclear whether the SEC alone could reverse the trend. And that's because there are massive non-regulatory forces at work as well, such as the channeling of massive wealth to private funds. 
So in our article, Joel and I aren't saying that this is necessarily a bad thing, sort of the rise of private offerings, but what we're arguing is that it surely deserves close investigation, the extent of offerings that are beyond the reach of Section 11. And what we do is we situate our analysis of certain public offerings, namely SPAC mergers and direct listings, against declining deterrent effect of Section 11. So, Professor, as you just mentioned, your article discusses special purpose acquisition mergers, the so-called SPAC mergers. So can you explain to our listeners, what are SPAC mergers? Why do you believe they may be threats to investor protection? And would those threats be mitigated by the Securities Exchange Commission's recent proposed rules on SPACs? As your listeners may know, SPACs are shell companies they're formed to raise capital to merge with a private company that hasn't been identified at the time uh, the shell company is formed. So there are two stages to the SPAC process. There's the first stage in which a SPAC does its own IPO, and that's not our focus of inquiry. It's the second stage that we're most concerned about. This is after a SPAC has identified a private company, it merges with that company, and the effect of that is to bring that private company public. So from the perspective of the private company, the SPAC merger, the second stage of the SPAC process, is the equivalent of a traditional IPO. And that's because from the private company's perspective, the SPAC merger targets perspective, the SPAC merger provides liquidity to the company, it provides uh, capital, and it also provides a more dispersed shareholder base. And SPACs do propose threats to, I was going to say unique threats to investors, but not, not all of these are unique. They're sort of common to other areas of other transactional structures as well, as I'll mention in a moment. When we talk about investor protection in the SPAC context, we're talking about a particular type of investor. We're talking about investors who buy shares in the SPAC. In other words, pre-merger, pre-SPAC merger, they buy shares in the SPAC and they hold those shares throughout the merger in other words, they don't do what's known as redeeming their shares. Investors that hold shares in SPAC at the time of the merger have the choice of having their shares redeemed or bought back by the SPAC, getting their money back, or they could choose not to redeem, in which case they just continue holding the shares and they participate in the merger and become shareholders in the post-merger company. And they might do that, for example, if they think that the merger target holds promise. So the shareholders we care about are the non-redeeming SPAC shareholders. Many of these are retail investors, and there are reasons to worry about them. One reason is that the firms that create SPACs, these are the sponsors of SPACs, have skewed incentives because of the way they've chosen to be remunerated, and that may lead to deals to SPAC mergers that don't serve investor interests. Sponsors earn, can earn very handsome returns, even if the SPAC merger turns out to be a poor deal for the non-redeeming shareholders. Joel's and my focus is on underwriters, actually. It's on Section 11 and underwriters. And this br brings us back to the analysis I, I mentioned earlier. Because these deals, these SPAC mergers, are structured as mergers rather than IPOs, there's no role for conventional underwriters. Of course, investment banks are involved, but they're involved as advisors to the SPACs and the private company on merging. They act as financial advisors or M&A advisors. The question is, for purposes of Section 11, are they underwriters? They're not underwriters. Then whatever their involvement, they don't need to fear Section 11 liability. And to be clear, the vast majority of SPAC mergers involve public offerings because when a merger occurs, there is typically the issue or the offering of shares. 
And when there's offering of shares in most SPAC mergers, the offering needs to be registered. It is a, a public offering. No exemption applies. So we have here a public offering to which Section 11 applies. And so, of course, issuers are liable. The question is, do we have this intricate system in which underwriters are liable and they rope in other gatekeepers who in turn to do due diligence for the benefit of investors? That's the big question. So investment banks, their role on SPACs, does it make them underwriters for purposes of Section 11? We dig into the various ways that SPACs are structured. Obviously, not every merger is the same, and there are various transactional structures. There's a SPAC on top, a target on top structure, a double dummy structure, and others. And when you do that analysis, as we attempt to do, we conclude that there are some quite clear gaps in liability in the regime, including the fact that investment banks are unlikely to be conventional underwriters. Sorry, they're not certainly not conventional underwriters, and they're unlikely to be what we call statutory underwriters for purposes of Section 11. So there's a clear difference then between the regulation of traditional IPOs and the regulation of SPAC mergers. And so the question then is, so do you impose Section 11 on SPAC mergers, or do you take it away from traditional IPOs, or do you do something else? And we argue that if Section 11 is worth its cost in IPOs, in the, in the traditional IPO context, and we think it is, then the case for Section 11 liability in the SPAC merger context is even stronger. So the benefits of Section 11 are likely to be greater in the SPAC merger context than they are in the IPO context because of the nature of many of the firms that go public in SPAC mergers. And it's also not clear why the costs would be any greater, considering it would be the same firms performing very similar functions in SPAC mergers to what we have in traditional IPOs. One other proposal we floated was to model reforms based on regulation of going private transactions, sometimes thought of as management buyout. So these are transactions which I think give rise to similar sorts of threats to investor protection to SPAC mergers. So these are deals in which there are fiduciaries who have conflicted incentives in a buyout, management buyout or going private transaction. It's the target company managers who may push through deals that hurt public shareholders of the target. And that's because the target managers, fiduciaries of the target in a buyout are often participating on the other side, on the buy side, giving them conflicted incentives. In the SPAC merger context, it's the sponsors and often also the SPAC directors, all of whom are fiduciaries who have skewed incentives based on their remuneration because they have incentives to push a suboptimal deal through harming you know, the public shareholders. Regulators have grappled before with how to deal with these misaligned incentives in the going private context. And essentially what they do is to require issuers to attest that a transaction is fair to public shareholders and give reasons for that, which may even require the use of an independent fairness opinion. And so we've, we've, we see merit in that regime and we've argued in favour of it for the for SPAC mergers. Jeff, getting to your final question about the SEC proposed reforms, just briefly, as you know, these are very far-reaching proposals and they're intended to align the regulation of SPAC mergers with that for traditional IPOs. We would see them as going a very long way towards addressing the issues that we and others have raised about SPAC mergers, the investor protection issues that we've raised. They would, the SEC would impose Section 11 liability on investment banks in SPAC mergers. In fact, they draw heavily also from the regime for management buyouts as well. And there are a host of other changes that they propose. The main issue with the SEC reforms is one of calibration. So there's a question whether the SEC casts the Section 11 net too widely by roping in parties that typically 
wouldn't be regarded as underwriters in a traditional IPO. There's also a question of whether there's a piling on of reforms. There's Section 11, plus there are rules modelled on going private, plus there are many other provisions that would apply to SPAC mergers. And so the question is whether the end result of the SEC reforms is to subject SPAC mergers to even more onerous regulation than traditional IPOs face. Just one final point, just to be clear, we don't doubt the utility of SPAC mergers. So the intention with reforms, and this shouldn't be the intention of the SEC reforms either, the intention of proposing reforms is not to burden SPAC mergers. So the intention is not to try and steer private companies toward traditional IPOs and away from SPAC mergers. I don't see any evidence that would justify that sort of channeling by a regulator. But at the same time, there is no reason that SPAC mergers should enjoy the regulatory leniency that they do enjoy. And that's what we're getting at. And and independently, we think that Section 11 is worth its cost in the SPAC merger context. And the case is even stronger than it is for traditional IPOs. Final question. Professor, your article also discusses direct listings and why you believe direct listings may pose threats to investor protection. But can you explain to our listeners what are direct listings? Why do you believe they may pose threats to investors? And how should the Securities Exchange Commission address those threats? Well, direct listings are are like SPAC mergers in the sense that they're also alternatives to traditional IPOs for companies wanting to go public. Like SPAC mergers, direct listings don't involve conventional underwriters. And so we have the same issue again. We have a transaction that functionally, that functions much as the traditional IPO functions from the perspective of a private company. It involves a public offering. Section 11 applies, but there are no underwriters, or at least arguably no underwriters for purposes of Section 11, even though there are investment banks. And so we have the question here about whether this is suboptimal investor protection. So the basic idea is that there's a process, the direct listing is modelled on the traditional IPO, but it significantly narrows the role of the investment bank. So in a traditional IPO, the investment bank acts as an underwriter. In a direct listing, The investment banks refer to themselves as financial advisors. They don't market the deal like underwriters do. They don't help price the securities that are sold like underwriters do. And they don't buy the securities from the issuer for immediate resale to initial investors as underwriters do in a traditional firm commitment IPO. So the big question is whether financial advisors are subject to Section 11 liability. Might they be underwriters under the statute, even though they perform a narrow role? That's an open question. There's no judicial guidance on that question. And yet the threat of Section 11 liability is significantly weaker, even though there may be some doubt about that question. The threat of Section 11 liability is certainly significantly weaker. So is this transaction structure desirable? Well, as as Joel and I uh, did with SPAC mergers, we argue that many of the purported advantages of direct listings are overstated. They're considered cheaper by some. Are there pricing advantages? What we have in a direct listing is without the involvement of underwriters pricing the deal or helping to price the deal, there's essentially market pricing, a price formed by the interaction of buyers and sellers. Is there somehow democratization of finance that direct listings help achieve? There have only been a dozen or so direct listings to date in the last nearly five years since Spotify adopted its transaction in early 2018, which really, I think, says something about the purported advantages of direct listings. Focusing on Section 11, 
Again, purpose here is not to steer private companies towards traditional IPOs and, and away from direct listings. But the analysis, again, is simple. It's what's the case for Section 11 liability for direct listings. Investment banks say they do the same due diligence. There's reason to doubt that we think, is Section 11 worth its cost in the direct listing context? Again, we think there's good reason to think that Section 11 has as much merit in the direct listing setting as it does in the traditional IPO context. Investment banks have weaker reputational constraints in direct listings because they're not underwriters, they're financial advisors and less closely associated with the deal. There's an absence of what are called lockup arrangements, so restrictions on selling shareholders in direct listings, which can magnify incentives of insiders to overstate a company's prospects. And so if the cost of underwriter liability are no greater in direct listings than in traditional IPOs, then the case for underwriter liability in direct listings is just as strong as it is or stronger for tradi- than it is for traditional IPOs. Just to sum up, Jeff, there are two trends here. One is this ever-decreasing proportion of capital that's raised in securities offerings that are subject to Section 11, and we think that deserves close scrutiny. The second is that the force of Section 11 is weakening even in some public offerings. And the key examples here are SPAC mergers and direct listings, and that's of particular concern. That concludes our podcast episode. On behalf of the Council of Institutional Investors, I want to thank my special guest, Andrew Tuck, Professor of Law at Washington University in St. Louis School of Law. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please feel free to contact me at jeff, J-E-F-F, at C-I-I.org. Until next time, I'm Jeff Mahoney. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Voice of Corporate Governance, brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non-sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, please visit our website at www.cii.org.